0: the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and it is my joy to be with you this morning. I've had a couple weeks out of the pulpit focusing on the remodel going on over at our new building. We are getting a lot of work done over there, but we are still in a lot of uh, need and for, for help. Specifically, if you are a decent painter, okay, a decent painter, we could really use your help in the next couple weeks. We've got some offices and classrooms to paint. Um, once we push through that, today is their last service over there. So we're really excited about that. We can get in. We're going to have a work day next Saturday. We're going to get in there. We're going to move all the chairs out of the sanctuary, put them in the basement, and we can tear out the rest of the carpet and um, and get ready for our, our professional painters to come in and paint the sanctuary, paint the atrium, paint the hallways, paint those types of, of rooms. So a lot of work going on over there. Lots of people have volunteered so far. Thank you so much for the work that you put in, and if you want to put in more work this week or next week or on Saturday, you can just message me on Church Center. I can make sure the building's open for you. We can get you the, 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 all the supplies and all that kind of stuff. So we're look, we are looking for more help. But um, we are excited about the progress that's being done. I'm, I mean, yesterday we had a graduation party over there, and everybody comes over. They want me to walk them through the building. So I was walking people through the building. Lots of stuff going on. We're really encouraged we're hoping August 13th, but again, we might, we might, we might not make that. We might not make that uh, it's a big project, so we'll see. Pray for us, please. Pray for us and help us out. But if you are new here, we are currently studying the Gospel of John, which is a first-person eyewitness account from one of Jesus' closest followers on the last few years of Jesus' life and ministry. Over the next year, we're going to go verse by verse through this book. So if you are wanting to know more about Christianity or more about this man who turned the whole world upside down, it's going to be a great time to join us on Sunday mornings. One of the things that you will soon discover about the real Jesus, the Jesus who is revealed to us in scriptures, is that he's always surprising us. Jesus is so complicated, so multifaceted, so deep, so glorious, He is God, by the way, that it's really hard to keep the full picture of who Jesus is in our minds. Now, what naturally happens, if you're like me, is Jesus kind of gets shrunken down to fit some kind of category that I have in my brain, right? Some kind of category that hides His true complexity or His true glory. Some of those natural categories that Jesus falls into, into my brain are, well, He's a good moral teacher right? Man, Jesus is just a really good moral teacher. You get kind of clunk. He falls down into that category. Or Jesus was a cultural revolutionary. He came to change everything. Or or, Jesus was just some kind of miracle worker. Or Jesus was a kind soul, right? Jesus was a self-sacrificial leader. Jesus was a sage, a teacher, whatever. All of those things are true about Jesus. He's all of those things, but he's so much more than those things. The truth of the matter is, if you see the true glory of Jesus, if you see who Jesus really is, his weight, his beauty, his wisdom, his magnificence, it will change your life forever. Amen. Nothing else, no other person, no other program, money, sex, power, clothes, popularity, Everything will lose its glory when, you, when it's compared to the reality of who Jesus is. If you see Jesus in the reality of his glory, the problem is we can't handle the glory. Imagine with me the glory of the one who spoke the Son into existence. The psalmist says in 113 that his glory outshines everything that is in the skies above. The song we sang today said, His glory taught the stars to shine. And you know, from here, those little twinkle, oh, oh, look at the glory, twinkle. Get close to that and see what that twinkle looks like, right? We're talking, look, think about the sun, right? It's not just, oh yeah, it's real nice, you know, it's real nice to warm us up. No, this is a blazing, right, a blazing ball of fire, right? God's, Jesus' glory taught the sun to do that. Jesus' glory, therefore, outshines the sun. Now, how many of you appreciate when you're asleep and someone comes in and turns on the light, right? We can't handle that right now, right? Nobody likes it when you're enjoying a nice campfire at night or maybe you're out camping somewhere and you're looking up and you can see the stars and and then somebody shines their flashlight right in your face, right? Why do you hate me? Why do you do that? What's wrong with you? right? Kids kids love it. You take kids camping, don't shine the light in somebody's face. Okay. Five seconds later, right? Well, as we're going to see throughout John, Jesus, as the light of the world, has entered the world, and yet people can't handle the light. So what Jesus does is Jesus hides his full glory and only opens it up occasionally to offer a little glimpse of who he is. In in one sense, think of Jesus as the Son, but he covers himself, he hides his glory, and just occasionally he'll light a candle. Just enough to get a glimpse of his glory. Just enough to get a glimpse that he's something more than just a normal man. Well, today... In chapter 2, John calls these glimpses, this is important, signs. He doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs. He says they are signs that manifest Jesus' glory. Now, it's kind of obvious, but it needs to be said anyways, that signs are given to signify something, right? Signs are meant to point to something else, Therefore, we're not meant to look at the the miracles and go, ooh, water to wine. Oh, that's neat, right? He must be God. No, no, no. Signs point beyond their acts to something else. So Jesus' miracles, they're not blatant displays of power to prove that he's God. He's not showing up at a wedding today going, I'm going to teach these people that I'm God. Watch what I can do with water. Okay, that's not what he does. Neither is he just showing off or auditioning for Galilee's Got Talent thank you. First service didn't laugh at that. I thought it was pretty good. I thought that was pretty good, right? Jesus' miracles are signs that point towards who he is and what he came to do. In other words, they're signs that point towards the gospel. Every miracle that Jesus did is a sign that points towards the gospel. John wants us to know that, so he doesn't call them miracles. He calls them signs that point to his glory, The reason this is so important is that as you're going to see in our text, there is so much going on in this little story. There's so much deeper meaning and significance than just what meets the eye in a cursory reading. In fact, I've been studying and thinking about and meditating on and reading and preaching this text for the past 20 years. I use it in nearly every single sermon or every single uh, wedding celebration that I do. And yet... God continues to reveal more of Jesus' glory glory to me every time I study it. I came out of my sermon prep this week and they asked, how was it? I said, ooh, it was good. That's how it was. I can't wait to preach. And this is a text that I literally use in every single wedding. And I've done dozens, possibly hundreds of weddings in the past 20 years. Now, what I want to do, I'm going to, here's how you study this passage. You read it, you read it again. You read it again, you read it again, and you, keep, you start asking questions of the text, and God starts answering those questions from, from the text. So what I want to do is kind of walk you through my study process a little bit this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to read this together verse by verse, and I'll point out some things that are interesting. And it's my prayer that you will begin to see or see a little bit more of the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus will change your life. Let me pray for us. Father God, I'm thankful for who you are. I'm thankful for your grace. I'm thankful for you being a God who reveals yourself to us, that you don't just let us bump around in the darkness trying to figure out who you are, but you came to us, you turned the light on, you showed us who you are. And I pray today as we study the life of Jesus, we will remember Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus reveals to us the Father. So God, help us see the glory of Jesus this morning. Would you think through my mind? Would you speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me? And Father God, we pray for our family today. We pray for Isla. We pray for all the Galliards. God, we know that you are the God that brings healing, that you are the God that speaks and drives out cancer. You are the God that can bring healing. You are the God um, to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And we trust you and we honor you and we worship you this morning. Would you uh, speak to us through your word? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And amen. Well, if you'd open up your Bibles to John chapter 2 with me. Here's where we are. Jesus of Nazareth has begun his public ministry. He's about 30 years old. He's been baptized by his cousin John. And God the Father sent God the Holy Spirit upon him like a dove to confirm to John that Jesus is the one. He's the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He is the Son of God. And Jesus, after his baptism... Begins calling some disciples. We've got about a half a dozen so far at this point to come and follow him. To be a disciple or a learner means to live in community and on mission with Jesus. It's not just coming to church, it's not just going to listen to him teach. To be a disciple of Jesus is a life on life relationship. You walk with Jesus, you talk with Jesus, you eat with Jesus, you go where Jesus goes, you sleep where Jesus sleeps. It's a 24-7 type of relationship. And apparently when Jesus gets invited to a wedding, you get invited to a wedding, right? So they must have not did, uh, you know, wedding invitations like they do now, right? Jesus shows up today with with six of his disciples to a wedding feast. Let's start in verse 1. We can read together. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. All right, so they are at a wedding together. Now, let me just start saying, by saying weddings were actually a bigger deal back then than they are now. Now, they are expensive. I have four girls, all right? Yeah, I f- appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm taking donations now. I've started a GoFundMe account, if you want to help me with that. Weddings were expensive. The weddings are expensive now, but weddings were even more costly back then. Today, it's one glorious day, and you just pack as much as you possibly can into one day. But you, if you've got people flying from out of, con- out of town or, you know, wherever they're coming from, they're there for a day and then they're, they're, they're skedaddling, right? Well, back in the day, you, you're walking everywhere, long, arduous journey. So what celebrations look like, they would have the wedding celebration and then they would have several days worth of party or reception. If you were wealthy enough, you would have up to a week. And when you put on your wedding, you paid for all of your relatives to come and celebrate with you, all right? So that was the tradition in this day and age. It was A wedding was a joyous and holy Ceremony followed by a feast that lasted many days. So Jesus and his disciples show up uh, to this wedding and they are expecting that. They are ready for a joyous celebration. They're ready for a party. But then something awful happens. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, okay, here's the issue. The wine runs dry. And the mother of Jesus says to him, They have no wine. All right? Now, this is obviously a problem. If you've ever planned a reception, you've ever planned a wedding, this would be something akin to you invite a hundred people to your wedding, and they get, and half of them get through the, the, the food line, and then there's nothing there, right? You've drastically Um, overestimated the the hunger or or underestimated the hunger of your guests before, and now half of your people uh, aren't getting food. Now, this ruins the party, right? This ruins the party. There's no wine. This is a major problem. This also looks really bad on the couple. We'll get into that a little bit more. But it's more than that. Because in the Old Testament, wine was given by God to gladden the heart of man. So he gave us wine to help us celebrate. That's one of the reasons wine was given, right? It symbolizes joy, fruitfulness, and blessing. So you want your wedding to be joyful. You want it to be a blessing, right? You want it to be fruitful. You want it to be a happy occasion. And so God gave us wine to have there. Wine was also used in all kinds of religious celebrations, and it was crucial for a joyful celebratory wedding. To run out of wine at a wedding celebration would be a huge faux pas in their culture. The groom was responsible for providing the food and wine. And first century Jewish culture was a shame honor culture. So we grew up in an individualistic culture. Back then, it's a shame honor culture. So if you did something like this, not only did you look stupid, but your whole family looked stupid. Right? It'd be like, wow, man. They must have really fallen on hard times, huh? Couldn't afford the food, couldn't afford the wine. Man, this the whole family is going to experience shame in a very public way. Now listen, one of our greatest fears, I would imagine all of us in this room, is to be publicly shamed, right? To be public, to do something dumb, to do something, to fail, right? Up here. Studies show that, the number one, the two fears of, of man, the second, the second greatest fear of man is, is to like die in some horrific death. The first fear is public speaking, okay? I don't know why that is, but I do what you, you would rather die than do what I do up here, on, apparently, right? Getting up here puts me in problem, I, I get in trouble often, right? Imagine being shamed publicly at your wedding. Now, I've done this before. When I was early on, 20, 20 years ago or so, and it was one of my first weddings. And I don't know how to do a wedding, so I go to the pastor. He tells me how to do it. He gives me kind of his wedding script. And in a pastoral wedding script, they always, they've got like, you know, Bob takes Sally, right? And, and you just take that form, and then you put, every, you put the new couple's name in for every single one. And I'm up there and don't know what I'm doing, you know, and I'm reading through it. And then all of a sudden, I, I get done, and, and I'm sweating bullets, you know, and I'm, I'm scared to death. And this is my greatest fear, by the way. My greatest fear is to screw up at a wedding Or, actually, here's the nightmare. The nightmare, I'll just let, this is a counseling session for me this morning. (laughs) My nightmare is this. I get called at 3 o'clock on a Friday or a Saturday afternoon, and they say, where are you? And I say, what do you mean, where am I? The wedding started at 3. Where are you? And I'm like, and I forget that, I, I forgot I had a wedding I got to get, I got to find a suit, right? And I got to go run in and get a suit. And then I don't have my sermon prepared. And this is my greatest fear in life, okay, to be completely publicly shamed and look like a fool on stage. Well, I do this first wedding and uh, the, the guy comes over and like ribs me Ribs me afterwards. He's like, hey, who's Sally? I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Like, like her name was Rebecca or something. Who, who's Sally? I was like, well, I don't know. And he's like, well, well, one of the times when you said our name, you said Bob and Sally, and I was like, like, I took the form letter and i like one spot I I forgot to replace the names, and I was like, just I just felt so incredibly small in that moment at their wedding. I called them by the wrong name, right? Like this is one of my greatest fears in life, right? So this is that kind of situation, but it's not just me looking bad, right? It's the it's shame on the whole family. This would be a shame on. The whole family. So this oversight here would have brought great shame upon the bride and groom and their whole family. It, was, it would have been a horrible way to start out their life together and would have caused them a lot of embarrassment in the community. Imagine every time you see them, there's that poor folk. then them poor folks right there couldn't afford enough wine, right? It's going to look bad on them for years to come. Well, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who quite possibly is... The wedding planner. And even if Mary isn't the wedding planner, you know, if you're a mother and you attend a wedding, wedding, you assume that you are the wedding planner. Every mother at every wedding acts like a wedding planner. That's what she does. She sits there and says, Oh, hmm, who let him wear those shoes? Hmm. Right? Ooh, those centerpieces. Ah, I don't know if I would have chosen that. Right? They're looking around, they're like, Oh, okay. It's a quaint ceremony. <laughs> it's quaint. Right? That's what. That's what they do most of the time. So she's probably, she quite possibly is the wedding planner. So she sees this faux pas. She sees this problem. Right, can you imagine day one at the wedding, they run out of wine, and she's like, but she doesn't criticize, right? Which is what most most of us do when we're at a wedding. If you've ever been at one of those weddings that make you wait three to four hours before they feed you in between things, you're sitting there going, I couldn't have got some nuts on the table or something. Come on, I'm starving over here right? No open bar, none of this. You're judging, right? Most of the time. Running out of wine already day one? (sighs) I knew my uncle was broke, right? Whatever it is, you're there, you're like, oh, this is ridiculous. This marriage ain't going to work out. This guy has no foresight, right? They can't handle the details. You have none of that. What you have is Mary running to Jesus with the problem. And that's interesting, See, scholars tell us, tell us that Jesus' father, Joseph, has most likely been dead for some time. Scripture last recorded him in the temple incident when he was 12. And Jesus has most likely been the man of the house for at least a decade or more. More than likely... So first off, in Matthew, Jesus is called the carpenter's son. But in Mark, Jesus is called the carpenter. So Jesus grew up... Um, and basically, it took on his father's career, right? He stepped into his father's role. And in one sense, he became the man of the house. So no doubt, as carpenters have to solve all kind of complex issues, that Jesus was a good problem solver. He was a very resourceful young man. And Mary was used to going, going to her, him with problems and saying, all right, I've got this issue. You know, Jesus, can you help me out? And so it's important for me to say that because this is the first time Jesus reveals his glory, People ask all the time, like, I wonder if Jesus did miracles as a kid. As if, like, you know, Mary ran to Jesus like, oh, I burnt the meatloaf. And Jesus was like, I got you covered. And he just fixed the meatloaf, right? Like, Jesus didn't do that, right? He, was, he lived like a normal kid, right? Other than being sinless, right? Which is not normal. So Jesus is pretty much the man of the house. Mary goes to Jesus and says, hey, here's the problem we've ran out of wine. But this is where things get really weird, okay? Look at verse 4. And I'm going to read this out loud, how I hear it in my head. How I hear it in my head is not how Jesus meant it, but, you just, but I think it's probably how you guys hear it too. So let me, Jesus says, we've ran out of wine. We need help. Here's what Jesus said. Mary says that. Here's what Jesus says. Verse 4. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Okay. Uh, that's a response. Uh, Scholar D.A. Carson tells us this. The tone is not rude. That means he didn't say it how we hear it. Woman, what does this have to do with me? That's not the, that's not the correct tone. But it is certainly abrupt, Carson says. It is abrupt. So it's meant to go, oh, something's happened. It's, it's got a point to it. This is, this is happening for a reason. See, I don't recommend calling your mom woman. It will not go well for you, okay? Don't do that. Now listen, it helps us to understand it when when we listen to this. The next time Jesus does this, he says it from the cross, and he says, woman, behold your son. When he's providing for his mother upon his death, and he's saying, John, take care of my wife, or take care of my mom, right? Woman, behold your son. But it is important. See, what's, going, what's from this point on, Jesus' mom and Jesus' family begin to fade into the background. He's stepping into his identity as the son of God and, as, and his mission as the savior of the world. And so people are going to come to him and say, hey, your mom's looking for you. And he's like, who's my mom? Who's my brother? Who's my sisters? Anybody that follows me, that's my family. So the spiritual family of God is going to begin to take precedent over his physical family as he begins his ministry. But then, look what Jesus says here. This is interesting. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now, every time Jesus talks about his hour in the Gospel of John, he's talking about one thing, the hour of his death. Now, Many of us, we read this and we just move on. But you got to read this and you got to ask questions of this text and you got to go back and read it again. Like this, are you tracking with this conversation? Mary comes up and says, hey, Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus says, what does it have to do with me in the hour of my death? She's probably like, probably nothing. <laughs> We're out of wine. What's that got to do with my crucifixion? We're out of wine, right? We, we don't understand what's going on here, right? We think it's a weird response. You should ask yourself, why? That it seems like a weird response to talk to your mother like that. Well, the reason it sounds weird to us is we're not fluent in the Old Testament. Here's what's going on. Have you ever known anyone who loved to quote movies? Right? You say something to them, and they respond with a line from a movie, or they respond for, with a line from The Office. Right, Just all the time. I'm like, that was probably in The Office, right? Okay, I didn't watch it. I don't know what it means. Right? Well, you don't know those movies. You don't watch those shows. You don't really understand the full context of what they're saying. When somebody asks me how my day is going, and I've had a bad day, I usually say something like, good, great, grand, wonderful. And you probably have no idea what that's from, right? That's from Billy Madison, that's, that's Chris Farley saying it, Billy Madison. And it means, my day's going awful. That's what it means, right? That's what it really means. When I said earlier that you can't handle the glory, if I said it like, you can't handle the glory, you know where that probably comes from too. Little Jack Nicholson, right? Well, this is interesting. Jesus spoke like that. Except everything he said, like he had the whole Old Testament memorized. So he would often quote it, for, or reference it, and unless you're fluent with the Old Testament, you will miss the significance of what he's saying. Here's what's going on this is so fascinating. Jesus is at a wedding, and it reminds him of two other weddings one from the Old Testament in the past, and one from eventually the New Testament and into the future. Remember, in the Old Testament, God himself came down and made a covenant with the people of Israel. He married them, in a sense. He was the bridegroom, and they were the bride. But the people were always unfaithful to their covenant. God accused them of spiritual adultery. So people worshiped other gods, they sinned against God, and God said that was spiritual adultery and even called them, in some places, whores, whores. Because he was the faithful bridegroom, faithful to his side of the covenant, and they constantly cheated on him, constantly walked away from him. So God, by the time, closer to the end of the Old Testament, God effectively divorced them. He said, if you want to worship other gods, have at it. And God removed his hand of blessing. God removed his hand of protection from them and gave them over to the gods of the nations. And those nations came in and destroyed Jerusalem and carried off the people of God. And so the Old Testament reminds us of one big, ugly, broken marriage. But that wasn't the end of the story in the Old Testament. God sent a prophet named Amos to foretell God's people of a time where their fortunes would be restored and God would somehow restore them, renew them, and remarry them. Look at Amos 9, verses 13 and 14. You can put it up on the screen. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Look at this. And the mountains shall drip... Sweet wine. So when this renewal is going to come, my wine is going to flow freely. Keep going. And all the hills shall flow with it. Flow with what? Wine. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. In other words, one day in the future... God is going to remarry his people and bring joy once again to his people. He's going to restore them. And one of the signs of that restoration would be the abundance of wine. Interesting. But the second wedding he's thinking about, let me just ask you, when a 30-year-old single person goes to a wedding, what do they think about? Their answer is, Their own future wedding, right? Everybody's sitting there. If you're single and you're 30, you're thinking, am I going to get married? What's it going to be like? When's it going to happen? I'm ready for it, right? Whatever it is, right? Well, you would say, well, Jesus was 30 and single and he never got married. So how, how could he be thinking about his future wedding? Well, Scripture describes in the end of the Bible that Jesus himself will get married. Scripture describes this future wedding celebration in the book of Revelation chapter 21, where it talks about the city of God, the sacred city, the people of God, every single Christian, those of us who believe, listen, coming down out of heaven dressed beautifully as a bride is dressed for her husband. At the very end, there's this call that comes out that says, blessed is he who is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That means Jesus Christ is going to have a wedding day. And this is how history is going to end according to the Bible. So Jesus is at this wedding and he's thinking about two weddings. He's thinking about the broken wedding, the the wedding that was destroyed, the divorce back in the the Old Testament. But he's also thinking about his future wedding, where God promises him a a bride that's going to be spotless, a bride that's going to be dressed in white. Now, I want you to think about this. The people of God are sinners. The people of God are idolaters. The people of God break the covenant of God, spiritual adultery, but God promised them someday they're going to be white. Someday they're going to be dressed in white. They're going to be purified and they're going to stand before Jesus to be married with him, right? Jesus is sitting there thinking about that. Here's the question, how? How do spiritual Whores get made into the beautiful bride. How? Jesus. Woman, what does this have to do with my death? Oh, everything, actually. What does his death have to do with a wedding? Well, for that, we're going to have to wait a few moments. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. All right, so thank God Mary knows her son, right? She knows that Jesus is up to something here. So she shows her steadfast faith in the midst of a difficult situation, a cryptic and abrupt and potentially offensive comment from Jesus. And she just says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. All right, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons <clears throat> Jesus said fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim okay this wasn't here just a good hygiene practice let me go let me show you something from mark chapter 7 if you mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 4 says this now when the pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem This isn't just a good hygiene practice. It had the washing that was symbolic here. They have these big pots full of water. You would come to the wedding and you would wash your hands. You would wash your face. You would wash any utensils that you're going to use. This had religious ramifications. Remember Psalm 23 or Psalm 24 verses 3 and 4 says this. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? So who can go up into God's presence? It says this: He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So if you want to meet with God, you've got to have clean hands and a pure heart. What we already see from the Old Testament, everyone is an idolater. Everyone is sinful. Right, So how do you come into the presence of God? Under the Old Testament, they had all of the ceremonial washing. That when you come into a religious ceremony, you have to wash. Before you eat, you have to wash. Before you offer sacrifices, you have to wash. The Old Testament taught that sin brought defilement with it. It made us spiritually dirty and unfit to meet with God. Therefore, hands and utensils needed to be washed and made pure before being in the presence of a holy God. So here in the scene, there's these huge water water jars over there that represent the whole Old Testament ceremonial law. How to be made right with God. How to be clean. The ways to have your sin forgiven. Jesus is making a very specific point here. He's signifying something important. keep reading. Verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Whoa. Okay. Jesus is doing something weird here, right? They're out of wine. That's the big problem. And Jesus now takes the ceremonial pots. He says, fill them up with water. And now what I want you to do is I want you to take a little scoop of that water. And I want you to bring it to the master of the feast and let him drink it. Now, that's, some, that's weird. Can you imagine this? If, what if that was your job? You're a servant and you're like, take this water to him? Okay. I'll, right Now, we see their faith. And that it looks weird, it looks ridiculous, it doesn't make sense, and yet they still obey Him. They still do it. Following Jesus and obeying Jesus won't always look like the obvious thing to do. In fact, often it will look ridiculous. But the people show their faith in Jesus by obeying Him. Now, look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, look at this reversal here, guys. Says this, everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely, here's what that means, when they're tipsy. That's what it means. We serve the cheap wine first and then once, or, or, or we send the good wine first and then once people are a little tipsy and they can't really tell the difference, now we send in the cheap stuff. Now we bring in the box wine, right? That's what we do. Everybody knows that that's just how you run a reception. Well, look what happened here. Once the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. There is so much going on here. Jesus turns water into wine, but he's actually doing so much more than that. First, Jesus radically covers, radically reverses the bride and groom's shame. Instead of the couple looking foolish in front of all their guests, all their community, how do they look now? They look extravagant. They look filthy rich. Who brings out, who lets us drink our fill and then brings out the good stuff, right? Who, who gives us the bottom shelf and lets us have it and then they bring out the even better stuff, right? Oh my goodness, these guys look ridiculous. These guys look wealthy. These guys look extravagant, full of blessing. Instead of being publicly shamed, they were publicly praised. The master of the feast, what a generous couple. What a blessing. What a reversal of fortune here. Jesus turns their greatest shame into praise as he brings the best wine to the party. Jesus multiplies their joy. He guarantees that the party's not gonna end, that the party's gonna keep going on, that the celebration is going to move forward. He makes the wine flow in abundance. Remember the prophecy? The wine's gonna flow down like, right down the mountains. He just turned, this is what they say, all those six water pots, that's between 100 and 150 gallons of wine. That's how much Jesus brought to the party, right? He was liberal in bringing that wine to the party. He, the wine flowed when he showed up. Now, I want you to see what's not here. What's not here is frustration. What's not here even is, that ain't my problem. What's not here is, why didn't you plan better? Why didn't you think ahead? What's wrong with you? Who made the mistake here? There's no finger wagging. There's no rebuke. Jesus just covers it. He just blesses them. And guess what? Nobody but us knew that the, or, and the servants knew that they ran out of wine, right? You didn't have all the moms in there going, oh. ran out of wine, poor planning. If I was in charge of this wedding, that never would have happened, right? Now listen, I go to a lot of weddings. I sit with a lot of women, and a lot of women, they're, they're, they're wedding planners at every single wedding, right? They're judging. Not what Jesus does. He covers their shame. He covers it. Secondly, Jesus turned, and this is important. He doesn't just take the drinking water. He could have took the drinking water and turned it into wine. He doesn't. He takes the purification water and he turns that into the best wine. A couple things from this. Remember that water, that water was symbolic for washing away, the stains of your sins. Jesus is saying, I've got something better than the old covenant. I've got something better than the old Testament. I've got something better than water to wash away the stain of your sin. Now, I don't think this is, I don't know any place that's been described better than this. And my my son had to read Macbeth this year in school. And this is, Reminds me of a section in the, the play uh, Macbeth by Shakespeare. It was spoken by Lady Macbeth and, and she's uh, walking and talking in her sleep about the assassination of King Duncan. Now, if you don't know, both her and her husband participated in the assassination of King Duncan and they've been unable to sleep since they killed him, um, But when she does manage to fall asleep, she's plagued with a nightmare about the murder and about the blood that they shed. And as she walks in her nightmare, she sees herself constantly rubbing her hands as though washing them, trying to get rid of, have you heard the statement? He's got blood on his hands. It's from this play. He's got blood on his hands, right? She's rubbing it, trying to erase it, but she can't. In this nightmare, she can't get the blood out. She says, here's yet a spot. Here's a spot. Here's the small spot of blood still. She's having a mental break under the weight of guilt, and she yells out, 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 damn spot. Out, I say. She's rubbing it. She can't get it out. Have you lived long enough To feel this way about your sin. Has it woken up woken you up in the middle of the night? Your brain won't let it go. Past sin. Sexual sin. Words spoken. Whatever it is. Has it woken you up? And in your mind you're saying, Out, out damn spot. How do I get free of this guilt? How do I get the stain off my conscience? How do I get this out of my mind? How do I get this out of my heart? How do I get clean hands and a pure heart? Jesus comes and says, I can get it out. It ain't water. It's wine. That's what I came to do, Jesus said. I can get the spot out. I can cleanse it. But how? How can Jesus get the stain of sin off us? Well, what else does the wine point us to? There's only one other place near the end of Jesus' life, in his last hours, in which Jesus, he talks about wine, wine cups, and he talks about them twice. One is figurative and one is literal. If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was praying, he, he was about to be betrayed, he knows he's going to the cross. He's praying overwhelmed with grief and anxiety. I want you to hear Lady Macbeth. Like he's, he's how am I gonna get out of this? How, how am I gonna, think about this. How am I gonna get these adulterous people to become a spotless bride, my spotless bride? How am I gonna get their spots out? How am I gonna get it out? And he says to God, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And as he's saying this, and as he's praying this, his capillaries burst, his sweat glands begin to bleed, and he's literally bleeding, like sweating drops of blood. He's talking figuratively because the wine cup that he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath against sin, the cup of justice. It's the just punishment that all all human sin deserves. Think about it. Just think about sin. Look at it in our world. Look at the consequences of it. Look at sin. Look at evil. Look at injustice. What does it deserve? It deserves punishment. And that punishment is the cup. The problem is Jesus didn't deserve to drink the cup because he never sinned. His hands were clean and his heart was pure. So why did he go to the cross? He went there for you and me. He went there for his bride. He took the punishment we deserve. Jesus says, is there some way I can get out of drinking that cup, the cup of cursing and punishment? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He says it, and he sets his face towards the cross, and he walks towards the cross, and he dies. I'll think about the second cup. Just before that, the night before, he had lifted up that another cup, a literal cup, with real wine in it, and he said, "Quote: This is the cup of my blood. I won't drink it again with you until I drink it in the kingdom. This means Jesus Christ has to take the cup of God's curse so that we can get the cup of blessing. He dies in the dark all alone so we can be cleansed from our sins. He dies in the dark all alone so that we can be dressed in white and brought into the wedding feast and eventually married to him. Jesus dies like an adulterer so we can be treated like a pure bride. His blood is the only thing that can remove the stain of sin from our hearts and from our hands. How do you get the spot out? He covers it with His blood. Scripture says this in Isaiah 118, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. How does Jesus remove the stain of sin from us? By taking our punishment and giving us his righteousness by faith. Can you see the glory of Jesus now? Just a good teacher? Just a moral man? Just a miracle worker? Oh no, so much more than that. All of this glory just by showing up to a wedding. Do you see it? And listen, this is, just, this is just a candle. This is just a peekaboo here, right? This is just a glimpse. There's so much more, even in this text, that I had more, if I had more time, I'd go off on. Through this one act... Jesus is signifying that the new covenant is so much more superior to the old covenant as wine is superior to water. That purification is no longer external through the ritual washings, but internal through the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Because of the work of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit to the heart through faith. That Jesus brings the new wine of joy that will never run out. His joy is unending, from the emptiness of life under the wall, the law, the life under the law, to the fullness of life under grace. All of that is here and more. That, man, this picture has just rocked me this week. Jesus had a wedding thinking about these weddings. A broken wedding, broken covenant, a future covenant that will be renewed a future wedding what it's going to take to turn sinners into saints. His own death. Edmund Clowney, the former president of Westminster Theological Seminary who passed away in 2005, once said this, Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow. Everybody else is having a party. Jesus knows what it's going to take to keep the wine flowing. He knows what it's going to take to make this bride holy. It's going to take his own death. So he sits there in the midst of the joy, sipping the coming sorrow. Listen, so that we today can sit amidst this world's sorrow, sipping the coming joy. Can you see the glory of Jesus? See, many see the signs, they hear the teaching, but they miss the glory. Can you see it? Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Can you believe? Will you believe? Let us pray. Father God, we want to know a God like this. We want to know a God who can get out the spots on our souls that can forgive us in the midst of the world's sorrows that can allow us to sip the coming joy where everything sad will come untrue. Jesus, we thank you for loving us more than we've loved anything in our world, anything in our life, loving us to the point of death, loving us all the way into new heavens and new earth, pray that you'd give us faith to believe. Thank you for dying on the cross for ungrateful sinners like us. Thank you for doing the work necessary to get the spots out. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for the remission of sins. Tells us to eat it and drink it as often as we come together that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So Lord, we want to eat and drink like faith-filled Christians this morning. Thank you. Would you encourage our souls? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen.